Thanks for listening. The following audio is a teaching from Calvary Tucson's Young Adult Ministry, Ignition. For more teachings, information, or if you'd like to support our ministry, please visit us online at ignitiontucson.com. We pray you're blessed by the message. So, Father, we, God, we just come before you, and we are just, Lord, we're just so humbled at the fact that we could even come into your presence and worship, Father, that we can come before you now, and that you hear our prayer. God, that, that you are a personal God that, that knows us, like Jazz was saying, Father, that, that we are able to have a personal relationship with you. So, God, I just ask that, that you would be in this place tonight, God, that you would just remove me and that your Holy Spirit would just be present, that you would work despite me, Father, that, that this would just be a time where we get to learn more about your character, that we get to learn more about the beauty of who you are and how much we desperately need you, God. We thank you so much for everything that you've done for us. We thank you for this space. We thank you for giving us fellowship and people that we can walk through this difficult life uh, together with uh, other fellow believers that, that can point us to you and walk through those good times and those difficult times with us. And we just pray that we would be your hands and feet to this world, God, that we would be the salt and that we would be the light. And I just pray that, that tonight would just be a good night of encouragement and challenging and conviction if it's needed, Father. And so we pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right. So what I'm going to do is I'm just going to read the passage for us. And then we're going to kind of break down uh, statement by statement what Paul is saying here. Because Paul has this way of saying extremely deep things, something that... that if you sit on that, you can sit in that for weeks. And he just, he just says it in like seven words and then moves on. So we're going to try to sit and figure out uh, these, these extreme... And I'm just going to start with verse 18. He starts with having the eyes of your heart enlightened. And I, was, I, I literally was thinking about those... How many words is that? Seven words for like four days. Because like, dude, that is a deep statement. That is such a deep statement, and Paul just throws it out there in the middle of a chapter and keeps on going. So it's like, man, we, we really need to take some time to get into this and see what Paul is actually saying here. Because at face value, I mean, that's something that, that you can't even understand at face value, but let's get into it. So it says, verse 18, sorry, that was a rabbit trail. Having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but but also in the age to come. So you guys, for those of you that weren't with us last week, Paul right now is right in the middle of a prayer that he has for the people in Ephesians. So he had just talked about how, how he has heard about their love for Jesus and how their faith in Jesus has resulted in a love for people. And then he says, I don't... I don't uh, Cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. And then he breaks into the things that he's praying for the, he's praying for the Ephesians. And so we talked about two of those things last week. We talked about wisdom in the Spirit, and then we talked about the revelation and the knowledge of Him. And we talked about why those two things are so important for us. And so now we're going to get into the last part of this prayer. And the first thing that he starts with is having the eyes of your heart enlightened. 
And I think in order for us to really understand what he's saying here, we need to kind of break down these, these words and see, and see the, the meaning behind these words that he's talking about. So the eyes, your heart, and enlightened. So what do those mean? So the eyes right, are what we use to perceive and to understand things. Our heart, right, in the biblical context, the heart is used in a lot of different ways. But in this context in the Bible, the heart is, is the center of your hidden emotional, intellectual, and moral activity. So the heart is the center of your conscious and subconscious thoughts, actions, motives, and emotions. That is the heart. So it's basically all of you. Those things you know about you and those things that you don't. And then this word enlighten. So the, the, this word enlighten comes from the, the Latin prefix in, which is in, and then lux meaning light. So when you combine these things, it means into the light. So it means to illuminate or it means to give light and to reveal what's actually there. So if we put these definitions together and we kind of restate the statement that Paul is saying, he says, having perceived and understood the center of your emotional, intellectual, moral activity when, it is actu- when what is actually there has been revealed. And we're going to kind of talk in- tuck into that because that could be confusing. So this idea, so what, what is he talking about, the, the main idea of what the eyes of your heart being enlightened to? So what is he referring to? And what he's referring to is what is actually in your heart, not what you think is in your heart, but what is really in your heart. And Proverbs 21, 2 says, Every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the heart. So this is why you can't, and this is why I can't, trust what we think about ourselves, because we are, we're so prideful and we're so self-centered that, that guess who will always agree with us? Us. Right? I will always agree with myself because I'm that selfish. I, I always think that I am right in my own eyes, but the Lord weighs the heart. And that, that is why when you have this conversation about what, what a good person and a bad person is, so many people think that they're a good person. So many people will just be like, well, I'm so, I am so much better than those other people. And people always think that they're so much better than they are. And then they always think that, that they know so much better than they do. And it's so much easier, right, for us to blame others when things go wrong. And it's, it's so much easier for us to defend ourselves when the consequences of sin are happening or when something doesn't go the way that we want it to go. It's so much easier to blame others and pick out how, how everyone else did what was wrong instead of looking in the mirror and seeing the things that I myself did because we are blind in our flesh, right? We are blind to what is really in our hearts when left, in our, when, when left on our when left on our own, right? When left on our own, we are blind to what is really in our hearts. So how do we learn? How do we understand? How could we know what's actually in our hearts? Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. So how do you know what's actually in your heart? How can you find out what, what's actually in, in your soul is the word of God? And John 16, 7 and 8 says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness 
and judgment. So these, these two things, right? The word of God and the conviction of the Holy Spirit. This is how we can learn what is really in our heart. And let's just look at that first thing, right? Let's look at what the word of God has to say about what's in our heart. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Mark 7, 21 through 23, Jesus says, For from within... Out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. Do you want to know what's in your heart? Man, that is what is in our heart. That is what is in the heart of man. And this is, the, this is the whole reason why, why God gave us the, the law in the first place. This is the whole reason why the law was, was given to the people of Israel. And we can see this in Romans chapter 3. Turn with me to Romans chapter 3 and we're going to go through verses 10 through 20. And it says, None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps, and asps are venomous snakes. It's, some people think that it's the Egyptian viper, and then some, some others will just say it's all the venom, venomous snakes near the Nile. But the venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. And we can go... We can go through the Ten Commandments, right? And we can talk through it. And we've done this before during service, right? Just talking about a few of the Ten Commandments, right? Do not murder, shall not lie, you shall not commit adultery, just you shall not covet, right? Want something that's not yours. Um, use the Lord's name in vain. Like there, there, there are these, we can go through those Ten Commandments and we can walk through and we can see how every single one of us in this room falls short. And then you sit there and you're like, wait a second, I'm not a murderer. I haven't committed adultery. And then Jesus, right, we go back to the Sermon on the Mount, though. When Jesus comes onto the scene and he says, no, you're missing the point. It's not just about action. Sin isn't just about action, but sin is a matter of your heart. Sin is a matter of motive. Sin is a matter of intention. So if you even look at a woman with lust without even committing the the act of adultery, you have still committed the sin of adultery because of what is in your heart. And then he says the same thing with murder. Even though you've never physically killed somebody, you've never murdered somebody, if you are even angry with a person and you call someone fool, man, you have committed murder in your heart. It is a heart issue. It isn't about action. It is about the heart. And the greatest example, and so when we see this, man, our our eyes are enlightened to the fact that I am messed up. I am, a, I am a selfish person. I am an adulterer. I am a murderer. I am a coveter. I am a liar. And the greatest, the greatest example 
of having of a moment, like a specific moment where someone has the eyes of their light or the, the eyes of their heart enlightened is David in 2 Samuel 11. So David in 2 Samuel 11, this is, so David is, instead of, instead of turning there, I'm just going to, I'm just going to tell the story so that it, so that we save some time for communion. So David, his, his army is out in war. David is chilling in his palace. He goes, he goes up onto his roof and he sees a woman bathing. And this woman is beautiful, right? So he sends someone to go find out who that is. And they, they tell him that, that that is a woman named Bathsheba. And it is the wife of his friend Uriah, the Hittite. And Uriah is out, uh, he's out fighting, fighting in, in the battle that, that David's army is, is fighting in. And so David sends to take Bathsheba. So he sends men to go and take Bathsheba. And they bring Bathsheba to, to his palace, and he has sex with her, right? He, he the, the way that, the, the most blunt way you can say it is that he power raped her. He used his authority as king to take her into his palace and, and forced himself upon her and had sex with her. And then she gets pregnant. So she sends word to David saying that she's pregnant. So David, to hide his sin, brings Uriah back from battle and tells him to just, you know what, go rest for a couple days, go spend time with your wife, sleep with your wife, and then you can go back to battle, right? He doesn't tell him to sleep with his wife, but that's his intention because he wants everyone to think that that baby is Uriah's. But Uriah says, no, my men are out on the line right now, sacrificing their life for you and for this kingdom. I will not go enjoy my home. I will not go enjoy my wife while, while my brothers are out there. And so he sleeps right at the door of David's palace. And so the next day, David realizes that Uriah didn't go home. So he's like, all right, I'm going to keep him here one more night. I'm going to try to get him drunk, and then I'm going to send him home. Maybe he'll go this time. So he gets Uriah drunk, and Uriah still sleeps at the door of David's palace. And so David realizes, wow, I am not going to get through to this guy. So he sends Uriah with a death note for, for his uh, commander of the army, saying... What I want you to do from David, David said, what I want you to do is I want you to send Uriah to the front in the heat of the battle, and I want you to pull everyone back so that Uriah is killed. And Uriah delivers this letter himself to the commander, and Uriah dies in battle. And as soon as Uriah dies, um, Bathsheba learns about it. She mourns, and then he takes Bathsheba as his wife, and he marries her so to, to finally cover up right, all of the sin that he has committed. And then a prophet named Nathan comes to David's house. And he tells him this story about how a rich man who had herds and tons of sheep steals a lamb from a poor boy who was his pet lamb. Steals, steals a boy's pet lamb to kill it and to feed his friends when his friends came over because he didn't want to kill one of his sheep. And David gets so angry. He gets so angry that he, that he says that this man deserves to die. This man will, will repay this kid sevenfold for what he's done. And then Nathan says, you are that man. You did this. You did that exact thing. You raped Uriah's wife. You killed Uriah in battle. And now you're going to have to suffer the consequence of your sin. And David, we actually see the response of David in Psalm 51. 
So I'm just going to read some, some parts of Psalm 51, just so you can get an idea. This is, so this is someone, this is the response to someone whose eyes are, have been enlightened. The eyes of their heart had been enlightened. He, it has been revealed to David what is actually in his heart. And this is how he responds. He says in verse 1, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Watch, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. And he says, For I know my, my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. He's saying my sin is always on my mind. I cannot get this sin off my mind. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And then he says, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. And that is what, that's what happens. And, you, and I highly encourage you guys to go and read through this psalm. Because for those of us, man, for, for those of you, I, I can, I'm confident, confident that every Christian in this room has experienced this to some level. Has experienced being, recognizing God for who he is and really seeing yourself for who you are and realizing, wow, I am a disgusting, sinful person. And God is just, like David says, God is just. He is justified in sending me to hell. I am absolutely deserving of hell when, when looking at the wickedness of my heart. When looking at the, the wickedness of, of who I am. Because when the eyes of your heart are enlightened... You learn and you recognize and you agree with what Romans 3 was saying. I know that I am not righteous. I know that I don't understand. I know that I am not good. Man, I am hopeless. And God is just in his judgment of me. Has anyone heard that quote, the first step to fixing a problem is recognizing that you have one? So does our God, does he just reveal to us how hopeless and, and sick we are, and then just leave us at that? Do we just sit in the depressing reality of that fact, of that reality? No. What does Paul go on to say in verse 18? He says that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe? So we're going to break down these three things. The first thing he says is the hope to which he has called you. What hope has God called you to? What hope has God called you to? First Peter, the, the first part of 1 Peter 2.9 says, But you, Christian, are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation and a people for his own possession. When you look at that and you realize that you have been chosen, and like in John, in John 1.12 it says, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to, be killed, to, become, to become children of God. We just, we just realized how sick and messed up we are. Yet, you're telling me that I'm a chosen race, I'm a royal priesthood, and that I'm a holy nation. Holy meaning set apart, sanctified, and pure. How could, how could you possibly 
say that? How can you possibly say that that is a part of my identity? And we're going to talk about why God can say that to us justly. How God can still be a just God. How God can forgive David of adultery and murder and deceit. And how God can forgive us yet still be a just judge. We're going to get into that a little bit later. But let's continue in this verse in 1 Peter 2.9. So you Christian, this is who you are. This is a part of your identity. A chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, and you have the right to be a child of God. And then the second part says that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. So let's just sit in that reality, right? If you, if you, Christian, if that really is who you are, man, you are an ambassador of him. You are the tangible representation of God's love and God's grace in this world in action and in conversation. In action and in conversation. So you have been transformed, right? You have been given grace. You have been given a second chance. Man, it's so much more than a second chance. The Bible says in Lamentations, his mercies are new every morning. An infinite amount of chances. But when you recognize when you recognize where you were and you recognize where you are now because of what God has given us freely and who you represent, you live it out. And part of your calling, right, part of that purpose, part of how you live that out is proclaiming the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light through word. Right through speaking about it. And this is, this is such an easy thing for us because we are naturally prone to talking about the things that we're passionate about. It's, just, it's almost like we are hardwired to talk about the things that we love and to talk about the things that we enjoy. Whether that be CrossFit or coffee or history or guns or D&D, right? Which is Dungeons and Dragons for all of you nerds out there. And the reason why... I use these five examples because I have talked to you guys about these things, right? CrossFit. Man, CrossFit, that's a, that's a slippery slope because <laughs> CrossFit is fun. And that's, but anyways, let's move on. That's a rabbit trail. We're going to pass that rabbit trail. But anyways, are you passionate about Jesus? Gosh, CrossFit always does that to you. It always takes up the conversation. But are you passionate? <laughs> are you passionate about Jesus? Are you passionate about, are you passionate not just about the subject of God, but are you passionate about your relationship with God? Are you passionate about, are you passionate about your ongoing experience with Jesus? So much so that you talk about it with others and not just with your brothers and sisters in Christ, right? Not just here, the safe place, Right, church, that's the safe, this is the safe place to talk about Jesus. But with those who haven't experienced Jesus, those that may get offended or make fun of you for believing in and following Jesus, man, that is a challenge. That is an absolute challenge. And if you are, man, then be encouraged. Be encouraged. That is a reflection of 
of your desire for Jesus. And, and that is beautiful. And if not, don't get, don't get prideful about it and don't get religious about it. But anyways, if not, let this be a time where you reflect on things that you may be idolizing. What are the things that you are constantly talking about? What are, what are the things that are on your top priority whenever you have a conversation, man? Are you idolizing these things? Maybe you are, maybe you're not, but it's something for us to consider. It is something for us to consider. And if you're not, this is something that, that is difficult because this is something I really resonate with and something that I am very convicted of. If you're not having a conversation about Jesus, think about the why. Is it because you care too much what people think about you? And this is, again, this is, this is something I resonate with because I, this is something that I have struggled with so much in my life. Acting in such a way to manipulate other people's perception of you so that people think that, that you are a lot better than you really are. Man, that is something that, that I, I mean, I confess to you, like, in front of all of you guys, that is something that I really struggle with, is caring what people think about me. And that is, that is just a result of, of my pride, and that is a result of my selfishness, and that is a result of my sin. But is that, is that what's keeping you from talking to people about Jesus? And one of the cool things about talking about something, man, and this is something that I learned in the Marine Corps, is the more you talk about Jesus, right, the more you share your faith with people, the more passionate you become about talking about Jesus and sharing your faith with people. It's, it's, it's a ridiculous thing. You, because you start to learn and you start to realize, because we talked about this a few weeks ago, how when you're in those situations and you take that step of faith, and you start talking with people about Jesus when the Bible says, don't even worry about what you're going to say because the Holy Spirit will speak for you and speak through you. Man, you start to learn, holy cow, I am just a vessel for the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit will move. The Holy Spirit will speak. I don't even have to worry about what I'm going to say. And it's such a beautiful thing, especially when you see people respond. Man, what, what an absolutely beautiful thing when you have the honor and the privilege of presenting the good news of Jesus with someone that doesn't know him and they the eyes of their heart are enlightened and they accept the beautiful free gift of grace and they are a part of your family now and you get to experience eternal life with that person man what a ridiculous experience that is hey everyone pastor JD here you've been listening to a teaching from ignition tucson the Young Adults Ministry of Calvary Tucson. If you live in the greater Tucson area and you're between the ages of 18 to 28, we want to invite you to join us in person. We meet every Thursday evening at 6.30 p.m. at Calvary Tucson's East Campus on Speedway and Camino Seco. Come join us. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance to you and give you peace. Down.